Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this month's deep dive. In this deep dive, we are going to be talking about TPA. However, before we get into that, I'd like to give a word for our sponsor. Once again, it is my pleasure to announce that this episode is sponsored by Pearson Rabbits Insurance. Stephanie Pearson is my personal disability and life insurance agent, and I trust her. As a resident, you will need to purchase a personal disability policy. The earlier you do this in your training, the better. And this is for a variety of reasons, including cost and exclusions and things like that. This policy is going to stick with you forever. It's going to be your financial shield against your career ending early. Stephanie Pearson was a doctor that got disabled herself, so you better believe that she knows her stuff. Ask her her story. You'll realize how legit of an agent she is. Go to www.pearsonrabbits.com. Fill out the contact form, set up an appointment to talk, let her know where you are in training so she can coach you on how to do this right. She's going to walk you through this, when you buy this, how you buy this. Again, it's www.pearsonrabbits.com. Get in touch. Don't wait until it's too late. Now let's talk about TPA. This is going to be a big episode, you guys. This is a controversial topic. For the med students out there, if you don't realize this, TPA is can get pretty uh, saucy when people discuss about it. This episode is going to be broken into two parts. The first part is going to be an introduction to TPA, so some of the theory and the history behind it and why it's so controversial. I'm going to try to be balanced, and that way we can kind of have a, a mature mutual kind of understanding of what's going on here, I guess. We're just going to do a nice, good introduction to the topic. Um, The second part is going to be what I believe is the clear path forward, given how controversial this is and how many different opinions are floating around there on this. Uh, My goal is to paint a path forward. I believe that there is a clear, obvious path forward with this topic. So let's get into it. TPA was good in theory. Prior to using TPA... For acute ischemic stroke, we've been using it for that indication for a couple decades, but prior to that, we were using TPA to treat heart attacks. It was one of the only treatments that we had to treat STEMI, and in contrast to the data on TPA, the data for using um, thrombolytics for ACS was actually pretty solid. You were seeing intracranial bleeding rates of less than 1%, and a number needed to treat of maybe, you know... 30-some, you know, 3% improvement in mortality, that type of thing. And you can go to the, the it's called the nnt.org, I believe, uh, to look up some of this information. But um, it kind of makes sense. If you have a drug that you give a thrombolytic to break up clot during a heart attack with the goal being to get some blood flow around that clot or whatever, and it works, it makes sense that you, you could extrapolate that potentially to stroke, which is another condition caused by acute loss of blood flow, whether it be from co- clot or or whatever, obviously you still have to test for that, but it, it makes sense in theory. And I say this just so we can, you know, cut Genentech a little bit of slack. It's not like they were sitting around a cauldron being like, <laughs> TPA, the tears of a child, puppy eyeballs and arsenic. <laughs> Let's charge a lot. You know, it, that's not really where this came from. Um, again, it was more of an extrapolation of what we were doing for uh, STEMI and ACS where the data was really good. Okay. So that's where we start. What we find out pretty quickly is that it's not so simple, unfortunately. What's the difference between giving TPA to someone who's having a stroke and TPA to someone who's having a heart attack? Well, when you're having a stroke, you're giving thrombolytics to someone that has 
friable, damaged, injured brain tissue, and it turns out these patients are really prone to having intracranial hemorrhage. Okay, so this is like a big like uh oh early on that we see, and this this isn't even like controversial. Like pretty much everyone is on the same page that TPA causes you to bleed into your head when given for stroke. Now it can cause bleeding no matter what you give it for, but especially when you give it for stroke. And I'm pulling this from the ASEP uh, clinical policy here on this, but with a number needed to harm of 17. The question then becomes: Is there enough benefit? to TPA that it will offset this increased risk of intracranial bleeding when you give thrombolytics to people with damaged brain tissue. And that's really what it all comes down to. And this is where it gets super controversial. And so I want to slow down here. There's something I need to point out because this is something that always confused me. And I want to make sure you're not confused by this as well. So we know And again, we'll just use the number needed to harm of 17. We'll just use that number. Um, But somewhere in that range is we are causing, we are giving thrombolytics and that patient is bleeding into their brain and getting worse. So we know that there's harm. The question that is studied very specifically is, is is there enough benefit from giving the thrombolytic to, to overcome that harm and cause an overall benefit? So I'm going to try to explain this. This is a little bit tricky. So when, like in these studies, what the primary outcome is, is some sort of functional outcome after a certain period of time. And so I'm just going to make up what one of these could be, but let's call it, let's say modified Rankine scale of a zero or a one, which we'll define as good, you know, excellent neurologic outcome after 30 days. And that's the number that you're studying. So let's say that you give TPA to a bunch of people and cause them to bleed into their brain. Those patients that are harmed are included in your final primary outcome. Are you tracking with me? That primary outcome is inclusive of the harm. And so the situation that comes up is you will have studies that are, quote, negative, meaning that there is no statistically significant improvement in overall function despite the harm. Okay. But that, that overall benefit, again, is inclusive of the harm. So let me give you an example. Let's say you, you do a study and, uh, you know, whatever, there's 100 people in it or something, and they're randomized to receiving TPA or placebo. Let's say that 50% of the placebo patients have good functional outcome at 30 days. And let's say 50% of the TPA patients have good functional outcome at 30 days. However, that includes, let's say, 6% of patients that were harmed by the administration of TPA. We're not saying that we know that it causes harm and that we don't know if it causes any benefit at all. What we are saying is we know that it causes harm. We don't know if it causes an overall benefit. Again, with the example being you could have 50% of patients in the placebo group doing well, 50% of patients in the TPA group doing well, um, despite the 6% of patients in that TPA group having been harmed, there may be potentially some non-statistically significant uh, positive outcome happening in there to kind of offset the bleeding. But again, we're only looking at overall functional outcome, which is inclusive of the risk of harm. Anyways, I just say that. I hope that makes sense. Think through it a little bit if you're having trouble or rewind it. I probably didn't say it well. Um, But again, when we start talking about the overall benefit, is there enough benefit to giving thrombolytics for stroke that it overcomes what we know is about a number needed to harm of 17 for thrombolytics because we're giving thrombolytics to people with damaged brain? Uh, Is there enough, uh, enough overall benefit to to recommend this medication. 
And so I want to point out an article here that I think really kind of explains some of the objections well. And then I'm going to kind of go through that and then criticize the article a really bit. Although, yeah, just watch where I'm going with this. So there is an article out of ASAP Now. Um, and when it first came, ASAP Now is like one of these like throwaway little newspaper things uh, for emergency medicine. And I remember, and I, I want to say when it first came out, it, the big title was, and then there were none, right? If you look this up online right now, the title of it is, after reanalysis, no trials show efficacy of TPA in acute ischemic stroke you may have seen this article. Um, and, and the gist of it is this. There's been 12 studies looking at thrombolytics and acute ischemic stroke. Only two of them showed benefit. These studies had their flaw. If you adjust for baseline imbalances and things like that, none of these 12 studies show the benefit of thrombolytics and acute ischemic stroke. Here is why I felt, Dr. Milne, who wrote this article, here is why I felt misled. And I think that at least the title of this article is Misleading. Although I agree with the content of the article, I, I disagree with the way it was phrased. Um, these, they pick, first of all, 12 of the biggest studies on thrombolytics. And just to be clear, there's other smaller studies and even lower level data out there that may show benefit or lack benefit for TPA. But these are the major ones. The problem is, is when you look at the 12 studies that are listed in this article, they are extremely heterogeneous. The article title implies, in my mind as a young attending, that TPA, given in the way that we do now, and you know, less than three hours of symptom onset, a last known well of less than three hours, or potentially a last known well of less than 4.5 hours, depending on kind of how your institution does it, that these 12 studies were analyzing TPA given in that scenario. And the truth is, uh, that is not what these 12 studies looked at. These 12 studies were, were completely different. Um, so you have different thrombolytics. So it's not just TPA. Um, it's TPA. There's one, I think, called like Desmoplase. There's a bunch on streptokinase. So you have different agents in each of these studies. Um, in one study, it was a different dose of TPA, more, so, more TPA than we give now. You have um, different functional outcomes, so like a change in the NIH stroke scale is one. A common one was like the modified Rankin scale. There's another one, I think it was called like the Barthel index or something off the top of my head, but you have different functional outcomes. You have different inclusion criteria. So th like there's one study that shows TPA given less than three hours, and then there's another study that'll look at three to four and a half hours, less than nine hours. And um, so, I mean, these studies are all over the place. And then you add in the additional curveball of, let's say you use modified Rankin scale. A lot of these studies seem to have that. Okay, here's the issue. Even neurologists, the modified Rankin scale is extremely subjective. So even neurologists, when looking at the same patient, my understanding is this has actually been studied, although I haven't read the study, would, would give patients different scores. And when you read the modified Rankin scale and kind of what the different numbers are, it makes sense that how subjective this could be. You know, are you so disabled that you can like mostly do your activities, but definitely the ones you need to, you know, it's like that kind of thing. Well, in, in some of these studies, especially in one of the largest ones ever done for TPA, they, my understanding is they were having patients mail in their response to how disabled they were. So you can start to see how, and, and like if neurologists disagree on how to score it, like, oh my God, like how are patients going to score themselves? To be very clear, part, the issue is not that there's 12 negative studies looking at TPA when given in less than three hours in the dosing we do now. The issue is that there was only one study that ever did that, and that was NINS, and then they never really repeated it. It was three hours or less onset with TPA in the dosing we do now. Um, and it was this positive trial. And that was where we get our number needed to harm of 17. But there was also inclusive of that harm again, overall uh, number needed to treat of eight as far as good 
functional outcome. However, this is all based off of like one study. The other study that cited as positive was called ECAS-3, and that was looking at the three to four and a half hour window, which again, um, you see given sometimes. Anyways, so let's talk about NINs a little bit. So this one trial that basically pushed this entire thing now where we give TPA to people with less than three hours of, of symptoms had a couple issues. So it was a randomized controlled trial. It was industry funded. However, one of the, there's, two, there's two issues. One issue was that they forced it so that half of the patients in the trial had to have 90 minutes or less of symptoms, and the other half had to have 90 to 180 minutes of symptoms. They smushed those two groups together, and then they said, overall, uh, it improves uh, giving TPA in less than three hours is helpful. However, they like in the real world, the number of patients that come in with less than 90 minutes of symptoms is extremely small. And so they artificially increased that group, and it would make sense that that could uh, change the outcome of the study. The other issue is despite randomization, the patients that had the placebo, that were in the placebo group that TPA was being compared against, the patients in the placebo group were much sicker. Um, and if you just look at like how severe their initial stroke was, they were, they were worse by random chance. And so then the issue becomes, well, if they were sicker, it makes sense that, you know, Maybe there wasn't a head-to-head -head benefit of the TPA compared to this group. Maybe this group was just sicker to begin with, and they both had about equal change, and there was no benefit of TPA. So that's some of the issues with NINs. We can get into ECAS-3 too, but I want to keep moving along. Um, again, most of these studies are all negative, but again, they're completely different. So this is where things get super saucy. How did this one trial get so much weight? Financial conflicts of interest. I'm going to put these citations, so that, this way you don't think I'm just making up conspiracy theories. I'm going to put my citations in this show, the show notes here. Not only were all these studies industry funded, which offers significant home field advantage if you want to change, you know, do a, a quick, you know, audible on what your primary outcome is going to be or what your inclusion or exclusion criteria are, or if you want to just stop studies early. This is a big problem with like meta-analysis right now is all of the negative studies were stopped really quick until they kind of let the couple positive studies run. And so the meta-analyses are weighted towards the larger studies that have methodological flaws. But... Um, there was there. First of all, these were all industry sponsored, which already puts in a level of bias. Um, and we could do a whole episode on how doing your own study, you can make it say whatever you want to say. It's all in how you organize it and that kind of thing. Anyways, so that's part of the problem. But the, the conflicts of interest go deeper than that. So when this kind of borderline data came out, the American Heart Association came out with a level A recommendation, meaning the strongest level of evidence possible on, on giving this stuff. And you're like, well, that's that seems strong, <laughs> you know, and uh, it turns out, and I, again, I'm going to post this, um, in the 90s, uh, the American Heart Association had received over $10 million from Genentech just in, you know, donations out of the goodness of Genentech's heart. Genentech had actually paid, I think, $2.5 million for the American Heart Association headquarters. When the American Heart Association put together their panel on whether or not to recommend this, kind of their guideline panel, there was nine people on it initially. One of them said, this is crazy. This is the, the data is just not there. Wrote a dissent that wasn't published. It kind of just got buried. Of the eight people that were in agreement for TPA, six of them had direct, like direct conflict of interest, financial ties 
to Genentech, meaning they were receiving speakers fees from Genentech. They were receiving research funding from Genentech. Some of them, I, I, you can go through this. I'll post the article. But like direct conflicts of interest. The American Heart Association initially didn't even put these conflicts of interest in their guidelines. Two of the people, my understanding, when they were directly said, like when they were confronted with, you get paid money from Genentech, they said no until they were like, and they're like, oh, I didn't realize I was on their speakers list and that I had to, you know, it was like that type of thing. So, super sketchy. Okay. Like super sketchy. And in case you think that I'm just like throwing shade at TPA, um, these, some of these articles will show like how the similar thing happened with steroids for spinal cord injury. Um, what's the one right now with atacalumab? Is that how you say it for Alzheimer's with the FDA where the entire scientific panel said there's absolutely no data doing this super sketchy. The American Heart Association comes out with these level a recommendations. They create stroke centers off this stuff. They tie a bunch of money to it. So the hospitals are all on board and all of the doctors are just going like, uh, Oh my God, like, what? <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess maybe, I don't know. I guess if you kind of like cross your eyes a little bit, you can make the data say that TPA works. It doesn't stop at the AHA though. Same thing happens with ASAP. Now to be clear, ASAP has since fixed this, but initially ASAP came out again with a level A recommendation recommending TPA for acute ischemic stroke. There is eight people on this panel. Seven of the eight had direct or indirect ties to Genentech, a lot of them through this kind of intermediary organization called FERN. You can see how people, this gets even more controversial when you already are looking at data that you can't make heads or tails of. So that that's the controversy. And so where are we at now? So this is, this is oh, I'm going to try to keep myself down a few at levels of energy here before I, because I might, I might go off. So you'll hear people say that giving TPA is the quote standard of care. This starts one of my biggest pet peeves, standard of care rants. When people say that doing something is the standard of care, what is the standard of care? The standard of care is highly situational. It is what a reasonable doctor in a reasonable situation at the same hospital in the same setting with the same patient it is what a reasonable person would have done. It's defined by a jury. So it's individual to specific scenarios. So when you hear people just saying like, doing all of this is the standard of care. Like that's the type of shit I said when I was like a third year resident back where I had like a really good body of knowledge. I understood what data was. However, before you get out into the real world, you have to make every single hard decision that happens in the emergency room. And you realize the whole world is shades of gray. I'm going to read out of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine TPA policy quote, It is the position of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine that objective evidence regarding the efficacy, safety, and applicability of TPA for acute ischemic stroke is insufficient to warrant its classification as standard of care. Until additional evidence clarifies such controversies, physicians are advised to use their discretion when considering its use. Given the cited absence of definitive evidence, AAEM believes it is inappropriate to claim that either use or non-use of intravenous thrombolytic therapy constitutes a standard of care issue in the treatment of stroke. There is your National Organization of Emergency Medicine saying, it is not the, hello everybody, anyone that's listening, it's not the standard of care to give TPA for acute ischemic stroke, okay? And you can make the argument that it's reasonable to give it, and um, they also don't say that it's the standard of care to not give it. They just say uh, you, it's, it's very confusing. 
I think that's where all the reasonable doctors are. Is just like you just look at all this evidence. You're just like, oh my god, it's a dumpster fire. <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. So um, that's kind of to bring us all up on the same page. My opinion. Um, I think that there probably is some positive benefit for uh, TPA and acute ischemic stroke in the right patients. Maybe I don't think that the data is solid on it. I think that you can kind of look at this evidence and really see what you want to see. Um, and and it's kind of one of those types of scenarios. So what I want to do from here is paint the clear, what I believe the clear path forward. Um, and that is shared decision-making. I will read the ASEP clinical guidelines. Is TPA safe and effective for patients with acute ischemic stroke if given within three hours of symptom onset? No level A recommendations, thank God. Level B recommendations is with a goal to improve functional outcomes. IV TPA should be offered and may be given to select patients with acute ischemic stroke within three hours of symptom onset. Um, the level C is when feasible, shared decision-making between the patient and or his surrogate and a member of the healthcare team should include a discussion of the potential benefits and harms, um, more or less due to shared decision-making. Um, it's the same thing for three to four and a half hours, only there's some different verbiage. Despite the known risk, this is the level B, despite the known risk of intracranial hemorrhage and the variability in the degree of benefit and functional outcomes, IVTPA may be offered, not should be offered, and may be given to carefully selected patients. And again, shared decision-making. The path forward here, everybody, is shared decision-making. We, we, we need to put this decision onto the patient and do it appropriately. And that's why I focus so much on trying to present a balanced view of this because a shared decision-making implies that you can make a reasonable decision either way. And so I'm going to kind of try to, I'm going to be winging this, but this is more or less what I plan on saying to, to patients. It's five parts. The first part, I'm going to kind of offer them TPA, um, meaning that if they agree to take it, right, if you, I'm not offering it if they don't have indications, but assuming that they meet all the criteria, I'm going to offer them TPA, meaning I'm giving it to them if they consent for it. I'm going to tell them that it's controversial and that, you know, um, it's their decision. I'm going to tell them what the risks are, because again, we have a known risk. I'm going to tell them what the potential benefits are. And then I'm going to reinforce whatever decision they make so that they can sleep at night and offer my opinions if they want it. Okay. So it's, it's going to sound something like this when I phrase it. You have the patient, they come back from the scanner, you know, they, they, whatever, you think they're having a stroke, they got arm weakness or something. I'm going to say, all right, I'm concerned, sir, we need to have an important discussion about your, your treatment plan. I'm concerned you may be having a stroke and I am here to discuss and offer you a medication called TPA, um, which is FDA approved for the treatment of stroke. I'm going to tell you up front that it's very controversial and so in the end, it's going to be your decision on whether or not you're willing to, to take this medication or not. The reason it's so controversial is because we know that approximately every 17 times we give this medication, we will make you significantly worse because we will cause you to bleed into your brain. And usually when that happens, you either die or become disabled. The benefits are less clear. Some studies say that there is still an overall benefit and you will still be doing much better when we look out 30 days from now than if we don't give it. In the best case scenario, despite the risk of bleeding, every eight times we give this medication, one less person will be walking around disabled uh, from their stroke. In the end, it is again your decision on whether or not you want the, the medication. I'm of course here to answer any questions that you have. Rest assured that no matter which choice you choose, whether to take it or not to take it, there are, there are smart doctors that I respect that would have made the exact same decision as you. 
If you want my opinion on what to do, I'm going to keep it to myself. But if you want it, I'm more than willing to kind of walk you through what I would want for my own family member. But if you already have a decision made up in your mind, um, don't let me change it. And, you know, I got to polish it up a little bit. And again, you're going to be doing it for different patient scenarios and things like that. But more or less, that's kind of going to be the gist on how I I do this. Again, I'm going to offer the medication, meaning I'm willing to give the medication. I'm going to tell them that it's controversial and that, you know, it's their decision. I'm going to tell them about the known risks. I'm going to tell them that there's potential benefit, although it's not entirely clear. And then I'm going to support whatever decision they make. I think that's very reasonable. Um, If they want your opinion, I encourage you to picture your favorite family member in your head and think through, you know, what you would recommend for them. And um, I can see myself going either way, depending on how long, you know, it's, it's more nuanced then. Um, I could see myself going either way saying, oh, you know, I, I don't think I would want my family member to take it. It's been, you know, we're pushing four and a half hours now. Your symptoms are really mild. Um, the, you know, the flip of that being, you know, you got here within 10 minutes, your symptoms are awful. I mean, let's just go for it. I could see myself going either way. Um, but uh, again, when you do share decision-making, you don't want you also don't want to like push your viewpoints onto them. And I'm going to kind of close with a story. I was debating whether or not to give this, but this is why this 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 is how I got so interested in this. And I think this is the most important thing to remember overall. It's a story about two patients that I had. Um, the first one, obviously, we're going to protect his identity, so I'll just call him. I'll make up a name, Sam. Sam was the age of my dad, approximately. He was at home, just minding his own business. I think he was watching TV or something, and gets dizzy, has some stroke symptoms, but doesn't come in right away. Um, and eventually calls EMS, comes into the hospital. If I recall correctly, it was more than four and a half hours regardless since symptom onset. Um, but I could tell on exam he was having a stroke and um, or seemed to be having a stroke. Uh, but his symptoms were much improved from before. Before his symptoms were more severe, they had significantly improved. I was able to talk to this guy, carry in a conversation. Hey, man, you know, um, we're going to get you admitted to the hospital. We're going to get some treatments going, aspirin, things like that. Do some additional testing and make sure that this, these symptoms don't come back. So that was the first patient. Second patient um, actually didn't come in as a stroke alert. This one came in as a sepsis alert. It was maybe roughly a month or so later. Um, Patient comes in by EMS from a nursing home. Patient was febrile, tachycardic, sepsis alert. So I was called to the room. Um, EMS said that this guy is nonverbal at baseline. That was what they kind of said. You know, he's got, he's one of these patients who has a trach, peg, um, needs staff to roll him. We roll him. He's got this big infected like pressure ulcer. I go back to my computer to get all my sepsis stuff going, and I open up the chart, and this is Sam. When Sam had gotten admitted to the hospital, despite when I saw him, him having minimal symptoms, he had, his symptoms had returned, had worsened, and he had developed essentially what, you know, I guess you could call it like locked-in syndrome. So um, the guy, again, the guy ended up traked, pegged, forever in a nursing home, in as a sepsis alert, just a short while later. And um, this is a guy that I had talked to. And now you only get so many cases like this. I mean, these are, these are the types of cases in your career that you like absolutely remember. I didn't even recognize this guy. Like I had to go back into the room and look at this person whose life is, is just, you know, oh my God. And I say all of this, one, because I think there's a little bit of bias in emergency medicine. We see all the people that got TPA, bled and got worse, you know young people, they have a little arm weakness and they bleed and now they're, you know, disabled. 
I think that we're less likely to see some of the symptoms when they come in with mild symptoms that get worse while they're in the hospital and some of the, the backside of this of, of these people ending up in nursing homes and things like that. Again, that doesn't change what the data says, but I think bef- I, I wanted to close with this with the goal being that we never lose ourselves entirely in just like the, the, the knowledge scientific piece of this, but remember that these are real people. So this conversation has real stakes. And after that case, I assure you, I, I read, I've been reading a lot since that case. Um, at least so I can, you know, potentially counsel people better in the future. Again, I don't even think this guy was a TPA candidate regardless. Not that I would have given him TPA with his minimal symptoms, but um, I just close with that story, which is very sobering, but this is a very sobering disease process. So with that, with that said, um, I, I truly hope my goal with this was to explain TPA to you in a way that I wished one of my attendings at some point along my training had explained it to me. Um, you hear so much on like journal clubs and things like that. I, I just really wish I, I tried to do it as like picturing my, my favorite attendings who I respect the most just saying, Zach, here's the deal. So I, I hope that I accomplished that. Um, if you liked this episode and you think it was helpful and it clarified things for you, um, please share it with a friend or things like that. We don't have like a social media presence or anything, but if you go ahead and share this with a friend, that'd be great until next time. Keep working hard, keep studying and be sure to enjoy your shift. <laughs>